simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast. We are here today with a very special guest, the author of this brand new book called Things That Matter. We're here with Joshua Becker. Yeah. Oh, thanks for being here, man. Joshua Becker. Thank you for being here, brother. Hey, go on. Go on. <laughs> One of our original inspirations. Man, I uh, I don't I don't know if we would be the minimalist without uh, without your inspiration, man. So thanks for being you. Well, you probably would be, but uh, you would be much less good at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, gentlemen, it's been too long. Yeah. It's been too long. What's it been? Years? Yeah. Since it, we were together. You were in Phoenix one time, but something didn't allow me to be there. Mm, but yes. uh, 2017, you spoke in Phoenix. You and were I there. was there. Was that um, my last time on the podcast? Yes. That I was your so. only time on the podcast. You've yeah. never done an in-studio podcast. How is that us. possible? I don't, I don't know. know. I'm like an hour know. and a half down the road via plane. <laughs> 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 I had to write a book to get on the podcast. <laughs> All right. It was worth it. <laughs> it was worth it. Joshua oh, Becker has sure. an open invitation to be on our podcast whenever he wants. Well, let's see how this goes. We're going to talk about overcoming distractions with minimalism today. We're going to answer a bunch of your surprise questions, including questions from our Patreon live chat. Mm. But um, first, well, I thought I'd start with a, a question here from Sandy, Alabama. You want to read Sandy's question for us? What is Joshua Becker's definition of minimalism? How does it differ from the minimalist's definition? Ah, this is great. That's yeah. good. Yeah, and so we're not going to differ, are we? <laughs> I love how you literally, yeah, maybe we will. Literally in your book, you're like, my definition of minimalism is. Oh man, I uh, <laughs> I remember him, make it by the book to I, find out. <laughs> I remember sitting at a computer writing it. I remember where mm. I was when I wrote out my definition of minimalism. I don't know mm. that they're different. We'll talk about them. I think the essence is the same. I think the definition might be different, but what really matters is the essence of it. Talk sure. about what yeah. when you talk about tell, when you tell someone what minimalism <laughs> is. What do you tell them? Uh, minimalism is the intentional promotion of the things we most value in life by removing anything that distracts us from it. Mm. That's beautiful. You yeah. I can't. Yeah. There's a whole you world on that. that. Mm. It's brilliant. I mean, on the surface, <laughs> minimalism, I think in terms of what I'm known for writing about is about owning less stuff, mm -hmm. uh, about owning just what you need to live out your purpose. But that looks very different from one person to another. And so... Mm -hmm. I found in my own pursuit that not only did minimalism force me to define my values, um, you don't know what you need to keep unless you know what you want to accomplish with your life, mm. um, but it also uh, freed me up to do more of that as I removed distractions. So, mm. And then as I saw it play out in other areas of life, then the uh, definition became what it is today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The solid definition. We Ryan and I talk yeah. about minimalism being the thing that gets us past the things mm -hmm. so we can make room for life's most important things, mm -hmm. which aren't things at all. And so while that's pithy and tweetable, the mm -hmm. the his answer is so elegant. The definition yeah. there is so mm -hmm. elegant. It allows you to really expand on that. Yeah. Um when we're talking about removing distractions, your new book is about that, by the way. And you've written about this for years over at becomingminimalist.com, mm -hmm. which is the blog, one of the blogs that really inspired me and Ryan to begin to simplify our mm -hmm. lives. And in the book, though, you identify the eight major distractions in life. And I thought we'd go through those together if, if you're willing. Beautiful. Mm. All right. All so, of them. All, of them. <laughs> all eight. And we're going to read all eight chapters. <laughs> Are we going to read all eight chapters? This is going to turn into an audio book here. <laughs> right. All right. So. <clears throat> this is from page 26 of the book. 
first thing we talk about is the uh, the distraction of fear. So you don't even mm. start with the distraction of stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's going to be mm-hmm. one of them. Mm-hmm. Talk about fear for us. Sure. So uh, people love the title of the book, Things That Matter, mm. Overcoming Distraction to Pursue a More Meaningful Life. Mm. And they, they all say to themselves, that is a book I need to read. And I think they all think I'm going to teach them to put their phone down, Mm. that that's what the book is about, because this is the distraction that we most think of and see. I, of course, discovered how possessions were a big distraction from things that matter, stealing time and energy and money and focus. Um, Possessions led me to think about money, think about work, think about accolades, all all sorts of different issues. Um, Other things that distract us from I think our most meaningful pursuits and a life lived with no regrets. So uh, we had a list. Uh, I had about um, five or six items on my list. And then in talking with other people, actually my uh, editor uh, really came up with the the idea of the fear chapter, mm. um, how there are not just money and possessions that can distract us from meaningful pursuits and living our best life, but fear gets in the way even before we get even before we get started. And so mm. while a lot of the book is about external distractions, uh, I think fear is an internal one and one that we all have to overcome. I, I write about overcoming fear to start the blog and going mm. full time. And um, I think I make the case in the book that we look at people who are successful and we tend to think they didn't overcome any fears mm. to get there or they don't fear anything and they just went for it. Right. But I'm like, I, not me. Like I had a whole bunch of fears about doing what I'm doing. And I assume you guys had the same. Yeah, 100%. We often think of courageous people as being fearless, mm. but real courage is operating in the face of fear mm-hmm. and understanding those fears are going to appear and they manifest differently for each of us. Mm-hmm. We often have that fear to start but there's, there are always fears behind those fears. It's not really the fear to start something. Starting the blog wasn't the fear. The real fear is like, what are people going to think of me? Right. Are people going to judge me? Yep. Mm-hmm. Am I going to be isolated by doing this? Especially when Ryan and I were in the corporate world, mm-hmm. right? Now all of a sudden we're saying we're minimalist, but we're, how can you be a minimalist and also have this career? How can you be a minimalist and be, you know, have kids? And that's what was so inspiring early on. When I first I saw Colin Wright, when we first stumbled into minimalism, and he is like this young, single, cool guy who owns 52 items. I'm like, that's nice, but I don't want to live that life. Mm -hmm. And I saw Joshua Becker and his wife, Kim, and their two kids, and they lived in the suburbs and they had a car. And I'm like, oh, you could be a minimalist on a car. (laughs) And in a weird way, that exposure helped reduce the fear that I had of simplifying my life. Because yeah. if you get too rigid, you become a legalist. Oh, well, I guess minimalism means you have to own 50 items or fewer. Well, then, yeah, I'm not interested in it. Mm. But we get confused and that confusion breeds some some fear in our lives. Yeah. Let's talk about the next distraction, the mm. distraction of past mistakes. Mm. The distraction of past mistakes. I did a uh, I did a survey for the book, <clears throat> and the most heartbreaking result of the entire survey became this chapter. Sixty uh, percent mm. of people say that they are held back from the future they want to be living because of a past mistake they've committed in their lives, mm. and fifty five percent of people say that they are held back from the future they want to be living because of a past mistake committed against them. Mm. 
and it was uh it was the most uh it was the most heart heartbreaking of all the uh of all the statistics that mm. we would be hmm that we would be held back I, I almost use the word that we would be defined by our past mistakes and that isn't that might actually be true like i think we become who we are because of things yeah. that have happened in the past uh but to be held back from the present we want to be living or the future that we want to be living or living for the or accomplishing the things that we want to be accomplishing because of something we did in our past uh something that was done to us in our past mm. uh it was by far the um yeah toughest one to get back wow. I, I knew it was an issue uh my publisher had had that topic they're like mm. i hope you're gonna talk about this <laughs> i'm like that's a brilliant idea we'll make sure it gets in the survey and then 60 percent of people came back and um even higher than that if you count those who've the um mistake was committed against them wow <clears throat> yeah before we started the minimalists i i had fear of past mistakes it was like man i had lived such a I don't know how to say it. Josh, what kind of life? How would you describe it? Hedonistic. <laughs> yes, very hedonistic life. And um or Enneagram almost, 7. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it almost prevented me from even going down this road with Josh cuz I'm like who am I to even, you know, call myself one of the minimalists? I mean, you know, we're only the minimalist because the domain was available for seven mm -hmm. bucks. Mm -hmm. um, He's really lucky the minimalist wasn't available. <laughs> <laughs> I really that am. That is hilarious. Have you used that joke before? <laughs> Probably. Probably. Okay. Are you writing this down, Sean? <laughs> that's These brilliant. are good jokes. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, at a certain point, I just kind of thought to myself, hey, look, man, like the whole point of going down the sort of minimalism is to live an authentic life and your past mistakes, that's you. So, um, yeah, it took a, a lot of courage, but I owned them. Uh, we wrote about them and, um, love people use things. It's still embarrassing and cringy when I read about it, but, uh, I think it's important that people know about, you know, other people's past mistakes. I mean, that's, that's really, I think where, um, a lot of growth comes from is, you know, we put politicians, we put movie stars and we put, you know, all these, um, uh, these people on pedestals and we expect them to be perfect and that's just not realistic. What's realistic is like seeing someone who has been through it and has come out of the other side mm. a better person. And that is a more inspiring story than yeah. I just woke up and I started winning and I made all the right decisions mm. and I continue <clears throat> to win. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. The thing about past mistakes is it's a story that we tell ourselves, right? The past is going to equal the future. Ryan, when he talks about his pill addiction and love people use things, the, the, all the hedonism that doesn't necessarily equal the future. But when we get stuck in that story that we tell ourselves, mm -hmm. well, that certainly becomes a distraction. Mm -hmm. The third distraction on your so list. Just, oh. just, so clearly this is a book about more than just putting down your phone. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, you do get to that eventually. <laughs> I do at the very last chapter. <laughs> well, yeah. and you know, the, the things that matter, right? It, at first, when I was going to read, I thought he was like, well, here's the list of the 100 things that you <laughs> oh, must yeah. own. Please, Becker, tell me what matters. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I really need a waffle iron, right? Oh, the book says I don't. I don't want a waffle Damn. iron. The third distraction you have is, oh, this is my favorite. Oh, all right. The distraction of happiness. Oh, yeah. You yeah. like that? Yes. Yeah. So, so the really, what you're talking about here, and I'll just read it here. When, when we try to satisfy the pursuit of happiness in the pursuit of self, we always fall short of the truest, most lasting forms of happiness. Mm. It's that pursuit of happiness that makes us unhappy. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it's the pursuit... <clears throat> It is the pursuit of happiness in selfish pursuits that makes us unhappy. Yeah. It would be is how I would define it. Um, 
I, I don't think there's anything wrong with the pursuit of happiness. I think we all want to live a life that we're satisfied with and um, find meaning and, and joy in. The, the problem is that we're chasing it in a lot of the wrong places. Uh, and we confuse the pursuit of self and the pursuit of happiness. And we think they're the same. Um, but mm. in reality, it's when we serve others, uh, mm. when we take care of others, when we live for others, that when we live selfless lives, that we uh, get to the end of our lives most satisfied with it. Yeah. And isn't it true that there's a flip side of that. We can also get addicted or distracted by the need to contribute, feeling as though we need to always give, 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 give without making sure that we are taking care of ourselves as well. So there's, I wouldn't call it a, a balance, but there's like this sort of homeostasis of mm. contribution in a way. Yeah. So much of the book is about what is motivating us to do the things that we do. Mm. Like, do we do the things that we do to make more money? Do we do the things that we do so that um, uh, we selfish, like we're taking care of ourselves? Like if, if this is the goal, uh, then we get distracted, I think, from, from things that actually matter in mm -hmm. the long run. Um, and so, as I mentioned in the book, I mean, the what's the saying? Um, you can't pour from an empty cup. Like, I, like right. there's a space for caring for ourselves and mm -hmm. taking good care of ourselves and not running on empty ourselves. Yeah. But mm -hmm. is the goal of that so I can just pour into the biggest cup that I can possibly have? Or is the goal of investing into myself so that I can invest my life into others? And I think that that's the point I try to make. Yeah. And which you're trying to make too. <laughs> Maybe not. I think, <laughs> point where it, I think the biggest distraction in our society might be that mixed with this next one. So the happiness piece yeah. plus the distraction mm -hmm. of money, which is the fourth distraction. Yeah, mm. that's and a good one, huh? You have a really interesting take in the book that not a lot of people talk about is maybe you have enough money already. Yeah. Mm. Oh, boy. As soon as you say that, it's like, People oh, don't like that. here comes yeah, no. the point of privilege. Right. But then you start going into the stats and it's like, oh, 43% of people live off of 550 or less a day. Mm. So you're already in the top half of the world, roughly. Yeah. Um, and probably if you're living in America, you know, we have people in uh, 190 countries who listen. Mm -hmm. But if you're if you're living in America, you're probably in the top. 10%. Mm -hmm. And so even when Ryan and I grew up really poor, it's we, perspectival, right? Yeah. We grew up poor for America. Yeah. Yeah. But poor in America is not poor in Bangladesh. No, you know? we were the fattest kids in the fifth grade. I yeah. mean, we were poor, but we sure got our meals ah, in. That's, funny. that's a good point. <laughs> we sure were able to eat. Yeah. yeah. We, we were malnourished in a different way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In terms of nutrition, but also in terms of like support and community, et cetera. So there's different mm -hmm. types of malnourishment. Yeah. Do you want to talk a bit about money? So this is probably the second thought that came after I started minimizing possessions. So if I was going to own less stuff and be content to own less stuff, then what role is money supposed to play in my life? Mm -hmm. Like if the, if, if the goal isn't to have more money to buy more stuff, then what's the point of money? Also, I started to realize that I could live on a lot less money than I thought I needed mm -hmm. to get by. So um, it's like 72% of Americans have financial related stress. And it's just a fascinating stat to me, considering we are the wealthiest country 
in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. And still over seven out of every 10 of us are worried about, like stressed about money. It's not because we don't have enough money. Like there are some people who don't have enough money, but the people who don't have enough money are a far smaller percentage of people than think they are. Did I Mm -hmm. phrase that right? Um, No, it made sense. And so why are we so stressed about money? And I, I've just come to the realization that we keep looking for money to provide something that it's never going to provide for us. Mm -hmm. We want money to provide happiness and we want money to provide security. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't provide either of those things, at Mm -hmm. least a a little bit at the beginning and then above and beyond that, uh, not much longer. And so we think if I have that much money, if I make that much money, I'll finally be happy and I'll finally feel secure. And we get to that much money and we don't feel any happier and we don't feel any secure. We're just as worried about money as we were with our last paycheck before. And the thinking isn't, maybe maybe money isn't gonna provide those things. The thinking is, oh, I just had the wrong number in mind. And actually I need this much money to feel happy and secure. And we get in this endless chase of needing and wanting more and more money all the time, when in reality, um, uh, a lot of people already have enough. There's enough coming in um, and there are other places to find happiness and security. Yeah, I remember- 80, 80% of people, sorry. No worries. I shouldn't be cutting off on your podcast. You're fine, man, cut me off. <laughs> 80, uh, in our survey, 80% of people said they'll be happier if they had more money. Ooh. And uh, I think that's uh, um, interesting. Yeah, it's- probably not 0%. It's also probably not 80%. I mean, depending on what that money is going to provide. But I remember when I was in the corporate world, I had this million dollar number in my mind. If I could just make a million bucks, I'll be set. I could like, you know, uh, maybe retire early. You know, I had all these, you know, stories I was telling myself about a million dollars. And then when it came time to start thinking about walking away from my job, I actually sat down and did the numbers. I put a budget together. And as I was putting it together, I was just shocked at how I didn't need a million dollars to survive. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that first year we got laid off, I think Josh and I made like 22,000 bucks or something. I mean, it was hardly anything. And that was one of the most stress-free years of my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, You identified what enough was for yeah. you. Yeah. And it's also worth noting that enough changes in time. You have a wife and a daughter now. So my enough when I started minimalism is different now. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that it's going to be a fixed number, especially with inflation and all these other things, right? That million dollars to buy a parking spot in LA. Oh my God. Um, yeah. And so like, you, you, it's it, depending on where you live, what your needs are, what the times are. But even those things, the acquisition of those things aren't necessarily going to make you happier. Mm-hmm. They won't make you more secure. They might make you slightly more comfortable, mm-hmm. but that comfort just ups your threshold for the desire for more and more and more comfort. Mm. We can bubble wrap our world, but it doesn't mean that we're going to be happier or more secure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. The, the next one is the uh, distraction of possessions, oh, which we've never talked <laughs> about. So uh, no, we'll, we'll, we'll skip that one because we're going to be talking more about that, especially on the minimal episode. But uh, the sixth distraction, and this is one, that um, I think a lot of us don't realize we have. And it's the distraction of applause. Mm, yeah. Another way to say that might be validation, mm-hmm. needing to be accepted. Nothing wrong with being accepted. It feels wonderful. Mm-hmm. But as soon as we feel as though I must 
have your applause, your adulation, your veneration. Now I've put myself in a little prison. Mm. Yeah. Uh, agreed. Agreed. Um, or not even just that I need it, but I, I want it so much that I begin living my life for that applause, for that appreciation. Um, I mean, the reality is some of the most important things that we do in life will never get noticed, will never be appreciated. Mm -hmm. um, man, I, I think of all the, I mean, I think of all the, the mothers out there who are, who are raising their children and are never going to be applauded for investing their lives into their kids. And yet, I mean, probably the most important job in, in all of society is raising healthy, moral children, you know, that contribute to society. And um, so, yeah, there's some jobs that, you know, require uh, applause and require attention. And there's some that naturally attract it more than others. And there's some personality types that attract it more than others. But when we fall into that distraction of living my life for the applause of others, then I think is where we start to get um, uh, detracted or distracted, I think from uh, some of the most important things that we can and should mm -hmm. be doing with our lives. Yeah. So. And we all desire it to some extent, right? I mean, I want to be liked. I love being liked, but <laughs> it's when you need to be liked, when you start living to be liked. And I think with, you know, with everything we're talking about, like the money, for example, this isn't about making anyone feel guilty for needing some money or for desiring some applause. It's really about like, is that your main focus? If these things become your main focus and that's what drives you, it's probably going to lead you somewhere uh, that you didn't want to go. Yeah. Yeah. Man, you should have wrote the book. <laughs> Did I get that sentence in there? Did I get anything close to that sentence in the book? Because you nailed it. Thanks, man. Thanks, thanks for uh, applauding me. <laughs> you, guys, you guys make your appearance in that chapter. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's let's talk about the next one that was most surprising to me. Ah, oh, beautiful. All right, good. Leisure. Leisure. Mm. The distraction of leisure. How mm. is this a distraction for yeah. us? Uh, CNN did an article a couple years ago. Uh, early retirement is the new American dream. Hmm. Um, so if I were to track my progression here, uh, possessions, if I don't need possessions, uh, what's the point of money? Uh, if I don't need as much money to live my life, then what's the point of work? Because most of us see work as the thing we do mm -hmm. to get the money to buy the stuff or take the vacation or retire mm -hmm. early, whatever it might be. Um, and so I was really... Um, uh, really influenced, uh, Dorothy Sayers wrote a essay around World War II called Why We Work. And uh, she makes this point that work today has become pretty selfish, that I go to work so that I get the paycheck to go do the stuff that I want. Mm -hmm. um, but she said, in reality, work is or work should be selfless. Like work is the thing that I do that benefits other people so that they can go do what they're good at to benefit other people as well. Like, I mean, I just think of the, like, I don't know if it's historically accurate, but you know, a bunch of families are out hunting and fishing and farming and building and sewing. And one's like, Hey, you're pretty good at hunting. Why don't you go hunt? And I'll build the houses and these guys can do the gardening and we'll have better food. We'll have better meat. We'll have better houses. We'll have better vegetables mm -hmm. and, and everybody benefits from it. Yeah. Uh, and so when we begin to see work as love, uh, when we begin to see work as the thing we do to serve other people, um, then it, I think, begins to take on much more meaning 
um, much more meaning for a lifetime, not just the thing I do to make the money so that I can stop doing it as soon as possible. Ooh, yeah. What a great framing there because yeah. that is often what we think. And we're living then for the weekends, for mm. the holiday. Oh, I get the three day weekend this weekend. Yeah. And what that says to me, like it's the sort of the opposite, although this turned into a sort of cultish behavior. So you have to be careful with this too. We work when they had, <laughs> they, they, when they first started their employees, they had this whole thing. Thank God it's Monday. Mm. Like we get to do, mm-hmm. I mean, the message behind that is we get to do this as opposed to, uh, I guess I have to do this. Yeah. Man, sometimes, well, like I love the example in that chapter of the landscaper, like helping him reframe mm-hmm. landscaping. Do you, can you tell that story? In- yeah. Cause I, I, you know, um, some people, I, I don't know, I, some people will read this and think, oh, well, not everyone can go do the job that follows their passions or mm-hmm. like they can't all go do what they want to be doing. Some of us just have to work to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly that is true, but what I want to try to do is reframe how we do the job that we're doing. Like 78% of Americans are disengaged at work. And it's not because 78% of jobs are bad Mm -hmm. in America. It's just because as Dorothy would say, we've taken this selfish attitude to it. And I don't want to be here, but I need the money to buy the stuff. So I'm just putting in my time. Mm -hmm. But when you begin to see, Hey, whatever I'm doing is helping people, then it becomes more meaningful. So the landscaper approached me is like, well, I just do the landscape laying. Like, how, how is that meaningful? Mm. I'm like, every time I go for a walk with my son, like we get to enjoy the neighborhood. Like we get mm-hmm. to enjoy the work that you do, or you take care of the doctor's yard who just did the operation for my friend who didn't have to worry about his yard and mm-hmm. he could go do what he was good at because you were doing what you were good at. Or the, yeah. I'm like the grocery store clerk, the, the grocery store clerk takes the money from the people that eventually gets to the farmer who was doing the hard work of growing the food mm-hmm. or the corporation that was growing the food, however you get there. <laughs> but, uh, but everything that we do, I think is benefit. Ah, uh, there's probably a really small percentage of jobs that aren't, well, aren't benefiting yeah. society. Yeah. But for the we, most we call part, those people advertisers. <laughs> no. I mean, there's always an exception to any rule, right? But for the most yes. part, when you think through <laughs> your, your work lens of, how is my work providing meaning to other people? I think that we find far more joy in that at the end of every day. Yeah. I just remember thinking to myself when I was in that corporate world, I'm like, oh, if I can just find a way to help people, if I could just find a way to help people. And then I was kind of looking at what I was doing. I'm like, wait a minute. Like there's a small sliver of my work where I do help people. And it kind of helped me reframe eventually that, yeah, anything, any, any job, with the exception of advertisers, <laughs> they are providing help in some in some way. It really just depends on how you're looking at it. Like I heard this interview with this gentleman who was a customer service agent, and um, he I forget what country he was from, but they were like, you know, how do you like your job? He's like, I love it. He's like, people call me, they have problems. I get to talk them through the problems. I get to solve them. We hang up the phone. They're happy, and you know, I've contributed to my community that day. And I'm thinking, like, when I was in customer service and telecom, I wish I would have had that framework <laughs> to work with rather than what I was working with. But yeah. Yeah. So the final distraction 
Put down your phone. The distraction <laughs> of technology. There were some surprising stats in this, man. You want to go through some of those? I don't know which ones you mean. Well, which, you go through them. Well, no, there was one about, um, oh man, now I'm like putting myself on the spot. Way to go, Nicodemus. No, there was one about the percentage of people who admitted that like, you know, technology gets in the mm. way. I forget what the stat mm. was, but it was a surprisingly large number where people are just admitting. They're like, yeah, like it, technology is preventing me from being the person that I want to be. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I try to draw a distinction between technology and the trivial. Um, uh, certainly, I think a, a lot of our technology, the phone that we think of is is a, a big distraction that just keeps us from um, more important pursuits in life. But the, the phone isn't bad in and mm-hmm. of itself. Like technology isn't bad in and of itself. Social media isn't bad in and of itself. I get to do what I do because of social media and because of technology and because mm-hmm. of the internet and because of computers. But when it becomes... Uh, a distraction when it becomes the, I mean, there's some ways, even the good parts of technology can become a, can become a distraction. Um, mm. But uh, it's the trivial stuff. I think that that gets in the way so much, you know, Cal Newport would say it gets in the way of deep work and mm-hmm. deep, meaningful work, or mm-hmm. uh, just gets in the way of spending time with our kids at night when we're scrolling through social media or yeah. trying to pass another 10 levels of Candy Crush. <laughs> It sort of sets up the smoke screen between us and the people that we care the most about, the people we spend the most time with. And we get really comfortable in front of those people with these behaviors. You know, the um, Ryan and I often talk about how scrolling is the new smoking. Mm. And the reason that we talk about it that way is like if 50 years ago you lit up a cigarette in here, no one would probably think anything of it. If you did it now, we'd be like, what the hell is he doing? Right. (laughs) But if a, a random person just grabs their phone and like, if you grabbed your phone right now and started scrolling, it wouldn't seem that outside the norm. Mm-hmm. So we've developed a culture that is not just okay with distraction, but sometimes, uh, well, it's understanding of distractions and understanding in a way that actually continues to allow those distractions to get in the way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I would probably make the case that, that most of the distractions in the book, not to the level that technology, because we see it right in front of us, Mm -hmm. but the pursuit of money, the pursuit of possessions, the pursuit of leisure, like the pursuit of happiness and the self, like these are all pretty common things that surround us and um, society seems to encourage them or maybe something inside of us that seems to encourage them. And so um, that's a good point about, it just seems so natural uh, these days that we don't even think nothing of it. Well, we don't think of it as a distraction, even though we all know that we're so distracted by mm-hmm. our technology, you know, yeah. so much so that there was the um, Google executive who called the smartphone the 79th organ because we, it, mm. it, we've already turned into AI in many ways. Like it's right there. It's mm-hmm. an appendage. Yeah. And uh, we'd feel worse, you know, whenever you hit sort of that panic feeling when, when you leave home, it becomes another dist- uh, the panic of like, oh, I don't didn't bring my phone with me, or oh, I where to go? You know, I'm touching my pockets, and that just makes me realize how often am I actually reaching for it? You know, tapping and swiping. I think the stat that I saw not that long ago is we like tap, swipe, click our phones twenty six hundred times a day, mm-hmm. and uh, pick it up, view it one hundred and fifty plus times mm-hmm. a day. Think about that kind of distraction now. 
there are different types of distractions there. One is the text messages or phone calls or if someone's trying to get a hold of me. And so if I'm constantly readily available, I've set that expectation that I'll always respond to you immediately. Well, that's one type of distraction. But the other is when I go seek out the distractions. Oh, I'm just going to go to Instagram for a minute. And all of a sudden, it's 45 minutes later. I'm drooling all over myself. Mm. And I don't feel good. I don't even know what I've looked at. Uh, <laughs> and so yeah. I think... Food? Yes. It's yes. causing you to drool. And really, nothing to do with butts. I can't think of anything else <laughs> other than food. <laughs> Alabama, we got a question from Mo. I know you guys agree about a lot of things, but what do you guys disagree about? So, <laughs> I thought this question was appropriate because... Here's where it gets raw. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you brought a list. This is what the people really want. Here's the list of the 400 the things we disagree things about. At the top. This is just what Ambush. Ryan and I disagree about. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, I got this email uh, maybe a year or so ago from Joshua Becker, who said... Uh, he said, hey, Josh, we disagree about the world on quite a number of things. <laughs> and I was pretty worried to receive your new book. Which a lot of people use things. Um, how I was going to personally navigate it on Becoming Minimalist, his website. Mm -hmm. But other than a few quarrels at points, I enjoyed it very much. I got to know you and Ryan much better. Mm -hmm. And I was curious when Mo asked this question, because I was like, when you sent that email, I'm like, what? What do we disagree about? I'm sure we disagree, because Ryan and I disagree about yeah. almost everything. Yeah. So nice. I I'm wondering what what a lot of nuance. We disagree about the three of us. Yeah. Does anything come to mind? Well, who gets to start? <laughs> I'm <laughs> trying to think of something uh, off the top of my head. Um, yeah. Well, so, <clears throat> so my faith is a, a pretty defining of the way I view mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that we, we have some differences there. For just sure. How yes. we, um, All three of us do. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so those things come to mind. <clears throat> uh, I, uh, probably how we view relationships, mm -hmm. um, I think, uh, comes to mind a little bit as, as a disagreement. So this mm -hmm. was related to the, the book, love yeah. people use things. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I'm like, well, is this going to be about, you know, relationships and mm -hmm. how to, how we love people and what love looks like and, mm -hmm. and what it doesn't. And mm -hmm. I'm like, ah, if he gets into some of the stuff that I know I've heard him say recently, I, I don't know how I'm going to navigate this mm. on the on the blog. So that's where that was coming from. Got it. Um, <clears throat> so those things come to mind. I, I don't know about minimalism per se. I would have to think a little bit harder if mm. there's anything in minimalism. Uh, you wrote a you wrote an essay one time about um, the advice epidemic. Yes. And uh, and not giving advice and there yeah. are no shoulds and shouldn'ts and I'm like, does he really believe that there are no shoulds and shouldn'ts in the world? Yeah. Surely there are some. <laughs> you should breathe. <laughs> so I, those were yeah. those were some of the things yeah. that, that came to mind when, because the, the topic of the book was about more than just minimalism. And so I'm like, ah, if this says some things that I strongly disagree with, then I, I don't know how I'm going to navigate this on the blog. So I was pleasantly surprised when I got it. And I, I don't even remember what the quarrels are. Because yeah. <laughs> it was so good. Maybe you gave a list of uh, you gave a list of virtues one time that you didn't like or something. Oh yeah, yeah. Like, yeah it's, it's funny. Everything, this doesn't make any sense. To a me. lot of the things you're bringing up, <laughs> him and I have had conversations about, and we kind of go back and forth on. But that's that's what I love about 
any type of disagreements. And I'm not, you know, I'm just using that as the word. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just a disagreement. But what I find is when Josh, you know, says something like um, uh, uh, empathy is a, uh, it's a misnomer and it's pointless. Like I've never know, said that, but I understand I'm where sorry. he's going. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, empathy is overrated. Yes. 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 For sure. So, so it's funny because when I first read that, I'm like, what are you talking about? Do like empathy mm-hmm. is like, that's, you know, I mean, and this is, I'm getting defensive because I'm a very, uh, you know, uh, I'm an, I'm an empath, I guess you would say. And uh, after the conversation, I actually came out of it very, with a different perspective. And, you know, I could sit here and talk about empathy, uh, but you could just read it in the book. Um, you can see what our thoughts on empathy are. But um, the point being is, is that when Josh and I disagree on something like that, and I have, a, I'll have a visceral reaction to it. But we have an adult conversation. I don't go on him and be like, "You're so stupid. I can't believe you said that about empathy." Right. Um, it's helped me learn how to uh, talk to someone with a different opinion and really get to a common ground. And I think like that, that's what we need right now. I mean, that's a lot of what we need uh, in the world is just seeing someone else's perspective. So that way we can at least have something to start from uh, to have a conversation to understand people better. Because that's really what we want. We just want to be understood. We want to understand others. Well, maybe we don't want to understand others, uh, some of us, but... (laughs) (laughs) We just need more empathy. Yes, right, exactly. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Okay, I got it. (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah. And so I think the the fascinating thing here uh, for Mo is that to keep in mind, there are a lot of things I disagree with my self about as well. So if I Mm. look at my 20 year old self, man, I disagree with that guy on Mm -hmm. like 80% of the things. Uh, my 30 year old self, probably a little bit less Mm -hmm. closer to my, my, my current self, but I'm constantly willing to revise my perspective based on new information, Mm -hmm. better understanding, et cetera. That's what I love about conversations like these and having friends like you and and like Ryan, where we probably don't agree on everything. I've told this story on the podcast before, but it's worth bringing up with you. We did an event in Washington, D.C. recently. We had T.K. Coleman there, Ken Coleman from uh, Dave Ramsey's network, and me and Ryan were there on stage, four of us. And I realized that all four of us we were in Washington, D.C. It was January 6th. Um, <laughs> coincidentally, yeah. it was an insurrection of love and joy. Yes. yes. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I realized we had all four voted for a different president in the last election, but mm. it didn't matter at all mm-hmm. because what mattered is that we loved each other. We were compassionate toward each other. We respected the other person's values. Mm-hmm. We didn't just tolerate them, but we actually appreciated them for who they are without trying to force change upon them. Mm-hmm. And so we had a lot of common ground there, even if we had a, a different perspective. Yeah. Compassion. That's that's what we need more of. And that's that's why the four of us can get on stage and have a meaningful conversation is because, yes, we have, you know, not just compassion for ourselves, but for others. And uh yeah, that'll help get through a lot of disagreements and arguments and frustrations. Becker on the Did uh, you debate politics? Oh no. No. Ah, so no. We would never debate politics. It's it's Stuck pointless. To the stuff you agreed on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we I, the, <clears throat> the the politics thing is often this is fascinating. We could talk about the politics thing by and large, not always, but is often a way to s- simply relate to someone else it's to say what well, mm. look at the team jersey i'm wearing tribal. And, and it creates a, a type of tribalism mm. you know tribes tend to unite against something a community unites around something is the way that i look at look at it mm. and politics often 
is a way to unite against something. Not real politics. You know, the actual term politics just means the affairs of the city or the affairs of the city or the affairs of the people, mm-hmm. right? And so if we're, if we're talking about politics, like how actual the people interact in society together, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. If it's about what jersey am I wearing, I'm not really that interested in, yeah. in the jersey wearing, personally. And yeah. yeah. uh, I was going to ask you to read... How do we do? You got anything you disagree with me about? <laughs> <laughs> Or all the things I listed. <laughs> no, no, I agree with all you right, on everything. All right, all right. <laughs> now, how about mm. how about this whole idea that there are things in life worth pursuing? That there are things in life meaningful that mm-hmm. we should devote our lives we should devote our lives to. Mm. You're all right with that, right? I'm not. I, I mean, I, I don't have a problem with you using the word "should." I know what you the essence of what you're saying. Yeah, but the problem quite often we get wrapped up as, oh, I should do this one thing. And you even talk about this in the book, how you weren't like born to do one thing, but there also aren't an infinite number of things Mm -hmm. that are going to bring purpose or meaning to your life either. Mm -hmm. But there might be a few dozen. And so it's not just the one thing. And I think people often get caught up because like, should I be a writer? Should I be a yoga instructor? Mm -hmm. Should I be an astronaut? Mm -hmm. And I'm doing the thing I should do. And it's like, well, okay. But if you're saying should in the sense that it's like, well, yeah, yeah, I feel great meaning from doing this. Okay, great. I I, I try not to get too bogged down by definitions because Mm. I think we start spinning our wheels. What is the essence of what someone is saying? And so when I say there are no shoulds, that's really what I mean. There isn't a specific path that you must take in order Mm. for you to be happy or or pursue purpose in life. Got it. I see should as a tool. It's like I use it, but I have to be careful how I use it. And, you know, if anytime someone is telling themselves, I should do this, and they're having like a really negative, uh, you know, anxiety uh, reaction to that, like that's a symptom of like, okay, let me examine what this should is. And why is it bringing me anxiety? And should I have this should? Ooh, that's meta. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, and, right. and, so think about this. And sometimes, and sometimes yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, of sometimes course. Sometimes they should have that should. <laughs> right? That's what you're saying. And but sometimes that, it, they shouldn't. Yeah, and that's where yeah, and that's yeah. where Josh and I kind of um you know, that's where we might differ in an opinion. It's like um yeah, should I I don't I don't know. Actually, I don't even need to go into an example. No, that's fine. Yeah. yeah. That's good. I'm glad you brought up that email. <laughs> the the Didn't you write back and say I should have you on the podcast and we should talk about it? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I've been listening to all your podcasts, writing down all the things I disagree with, just in case you ask me that question. <laughs> the 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 should thing is fascinating because the, the those shoulds here's where we can agree on it. Quite often they are developed by societal norms and those shoulds often make us miserable i should go into debt to buy too big of a house i should own three hundred thousand possessions i should do this i should have a facebook account i should work this particular job i should be an accountant because my uh parents wanted me to be an accountant or a doctor or whatever i should do these things as opposed to like well okay do i find them compelling Mm. Personally, as opposed mm-hmm. to sort of the mimetic desires of the I, community. I got one. How much time we got? How much All time? The time. Go for it, man. I mean, like six hours. <clears throat> What's your flight? <laughs> <clears throat> so, probably in your very first documentary, mm-hmm. uh-huh. you would say that uh, minimalism isn't something that everyone should embrace. 
but it's the recipe that worked for you. You, mm. you know your phrasing? Do you know how you'd say mm. that? We're out sharing the recipe that worked for us. Is that, am well, I yeah. close, right? Yeah, I mean, what we've said is like minimalism is an answer. Everyone can benefit from minimalism, but minimalism isn't necessarily the answer. Maybe that's a better way mm. to frame it. Mm -hmm. Maybe yeah. I would say is that we're not prescribing minimalism. We're sharing a recipe that's yes, for us. Yes, that's yeah. it. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. I would prescribe minimalism to everyone. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Expand on that. Oh, I, well, who wants to go through life buying a bunch of stuff they don't need? Right. Like, why, why, would, why would you waste your money and time and energy mm. on things that you don't need? When, when you can direct your resources towards things that actually matter in the long run. Yeah. I, I think that, yeah, I, I, I got no problem saying, I, yeah. think, I think everyone would benefit from those and everyone should do it. I, I, I'm, I agree so with you. That, that was probably where the first time I saw it on the document, like, I don't know if I agree yeah. with that. Well, I think we recommend it for everyone. Okay. It's just not like, a, you know, I don't know. When you, when you prescribe something, <clears throat> sometimes it tends to make people feel judged. And I think in order to help someone make the changes that, that they want to make, um, it's about supporting them, you know, and, but I, but I do agree with you. Like, yes, everyone in the, I mean, we get, we get messages from people in Kenya mm -hmm. who are like, thank you so much for your message of minimalism. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, no, I, I, yeah, all over the world. So yeah, I totally agree with you. It could benefit everybody, benefit the world. And then we'd all have a peace. I, I and so this, well, I'm not saying that. This is well. I actually, I, I think that if everyone did embrace minimalism, we probably would have much more peace. Yes, it'd be more in the world for sure. More calm. Uh, of course, maybe the way to look at it. I think this is where we where we do agree here is that virtually everyone would benefit from living intentionally. Mm -hmm. No matter what resources you currently have, mm -hmm. you could be a multi-millionaire, billionaire even. Or like when Ryan and I grew up really poor, we certainly would have benefited from mm -hmm. the intentional use of the resources that we had. We didn't have many resources, but mm -hmm. we squandered them in unintentional ways. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now we do a segment on the podcast called More About Less. We usually read an article or something as a jump off point. Sometimes articles from Becoming Minimalist. <laughs> All the time. Yeah. Let's do All those. The time. Let's, do, let's do one of those. Well, we have your book today. So we're going to read a little excerpt from your book. I was going to ask you to read, but you just had eye surgery. So should I read this? <laughs> <laughs> sure, I'd, I would. I would like to hear it in your words. All right. <clears throat> so this is a section in the book called "How Distractions Take Over a Life." Oh. Few distractions begin as a lifestyle. At first, they're simply fun and interesting. We enjoy the new game, the new television show, the new hobby, or the new website. We like the new phone, the new store, or the new idea that could become the new money-making opportunity in our lives. Some things we are drawn to quicker than others, but for the most part, the shiny new object is just a welcome distraction from the hard task of living life. Slowly, however, the new distraction begins to take more time and more energy from us. We get better at it or invest more time into it or find increased enjoyment in it, or start to make money from it, we begin to make ac accommodations to partake in it even more. Mm. Soon we rationalize why it's good to do even more of it. We steal a few extra minutes here or there to enjoy it, but the number of hours in the day never changes. So eventually, we start to sacrifice the most important things in order to indulge ourselves in even more of the distraction. Before we know it, this has become a way of life. 
not a welcome diversion from our problems. The distraction has now become a lifestyle. And, if, and we have lost some, some of our control over the lives we are living because of it. Sometimes we recognize this right away and course correct, but other times years are wasted, relationships are lost, and purpose is slowly, subtly frittered away. I like the use of the word frittered. That's mm, nice. Fritters. My editor probably put that in. <laughs> With risks like these, distraction should be a greater concern to us than it usually is. So mm, beautiful, man. I think the, the part that really that really stands out here is distraction has become a lifestyle. Yeah. And in the book when you talk about the eight different distractions that are affecting us, there are obviously more than that and you point out point that out in the book, but we've turned distraction into a lifestyle throughout our days, our waking hours. We're so distracted that it's become a regular part. We don't even recognize that we're distracted. Mm. Is that fair? Yeah. Mm. You have anything you want to add, Ryan? Oh. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, let but... me... Uh, <laughs> you were going on and on about how amazing it was. I thought maybe you yeah, wanted to put something... No, 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 I'm just kidding. No, here's what I will add, though. Since I'll you tell you the story up, of that. Go ahead. The arc that you wrote there of... It starts out as harmless... And, and you're not even judging distractions, but you did a beautiful job of going from uh, here's something harmless and it turns into your, you know, the, your detriment. It was it was very articulate. <clears throat> Joshua Becker. <laughs> uh, I can tell you when I um, when the thought occurred to me, <clears throat> I was talking to a uh, I was talking to a lady, an older woman, and um, I mentioned a uh, what is the whole history here? I mentioned a television show that I had started watching and she like pulled out her phone and she was like, what was the name of that show? Like, and she, and she wrote it down in her, in her phone. And, uh, um, we were spending a little time together and I started to notice that almost every evening, like she was just sitting down and watching like hours of television. She didn't need a new show. <laughs> to watch but television had become the thing that she did like mm. all evening all evening long and i don't think well i know tv didn't start out that way mm -hmm. for her like we find the one show that we watch or you know the the one evening where we're tired and we get home late or the basketball game or whatever it might be mm -hmm. and we watch it and it's it's harmless it's even helpful perhaps in some way a little distraction from the life that we were living but we get slowly sucked into it and suddenly we're watching something the next night and the next night and the next night. And uh, this television that could have been somewhat of a welcome distraction in her life had become like the thing that she did every evening on. It's like, it's like Formula One racing. Like you, you're introduced to it and then you just start watching more and more of it. <laughs> I'm referencing your yeah, Danny, Danny over just here. Got just said he got into F1 racing. <laughs> so like, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with the distraction at first. It can even be welcome, but mm -hmm. slowly it begins to take over our lives. The money making opportunity, the video game mm -hmm. that we start playing, the, the television that we start watching, the hobby that we get into. Again, nothing wrong with gardening. Nothing wrong with mm -hmm. those hobbies, but when they begin to distract us from more important things, and when they're not, yes. no, when they're no longer the, the break from the life that we're living to refresh us to better live the life that we're living but then they when they become the thing that we're living for i think yeah. is when um, we might need to take a step back like what are we using those things uh to avoid like what are we avoiding when we sit there and watch six seven hours of tv every single day what was the 
12 hours? I think that's what you were saying in the technology chapter. I, uh, I, I cannot, I, I cannot tell you a, enough how much my life changed when I turned off the television. Yeah. Like it, and it was all a part of minimalism. It was all about finding minimalism, going through the home. And I started the blog that weekend and mm. I, rather than watching TV, I used to just sit down and write mm. in the evenings and it, it changed my life to such a degree yeah. that at, in the more of less, I had a whole section on TV and my editor's like, you can't have a whole section on TV. <laughs> I'm like, it is that big yes. of a distraction in I, people's I, 12 lives. hours a day on average I, for I, Americans. That's insane. It's crazy. Mm. I, I remember one of the first tips that I heard you talk about was uh, getting at least getting the TV out of the bedroom. Mm -hmm. And you know, mm -hmm. I've parroted that so many times for folks. And because... People often, they panic when it's like, hey, what do you mean get rid of all TV? And it's mm -hmm. like, well, hey, why don't you try and get it out of the bedroom, right? And that will often improve marriages. It will improve sleep. Mm -hmm. And you were not constantly distracted by, because that one TV show turns into, especially now with binge watching. Mm -hmm. I'll just watch mm -hmm. one more. I'll watch one more. All of a sudden it's 3 a.m. and uh, one more episode of Vikings and I'm good to go. I'll tell you one of the worst things that ever happened to me is when we moved to Los Angeles, there was an, a, a TV in the apartment that I moved into. Like the previous people left a big screen TV on the wall. And it's the worst thing because of its availability. Mm -hmm. I've certainly mm -hmm. watched it more than if there was no TV at all, just by default, right? Mm -hmm. And so I found for me, it's fasting is so much easier than dieting, yeah. whether it's a TV mm -hmm. fast or it's a food fast or technology, whatever it might be. And so, yeah, I think the TV is a big thing. And now TV has changed, especially in the last 10 years, because it's on every device now. Mm -hmm. it, your TV's in your pocket. Mm -hmm. It's on your wall. It's on your computer. It's everywhere. It's become ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. It's a giant problem. Mm. We got a question here from Alabama from, uh, from David. I've heard that the minimalists dislike logos. What's the problem with wearing logos? Don't we have a logo on our website? <laughs> I mean, there's a logo right here. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, people often think, well, you guys always dress very similar. We're dressed completely different. I have a long sleeve yes. shirt on. Mm -hmm. You have a crew neck. And of course, Joshua here has his trademark, literally trademark V-neck. I yeah. tried to pull trademark. the V-neck off. It doesn't work for me. He sued you. Mm -hmm. because he, did. he was like, I mean, you should just stop wearing that. <laughs> he sent you a cease You're and ruining desist. it. <laughs> You're ruining it. You know, we did an event in Los Angeles <laughs> recently and a guy mm. came up and said, hey, so I like, yeah, I live, I'm real fortunate. I have a nice house. And I have cars. What's, what's wrong with me? Like just buying things whenever I want to buy those things. And I stood up and the whole crowd's like, yeah, get him. Like they wanted me to like attack this yeah. guy for owning stuff. Mm -hmm. And what I said to him at the time during the Los Angeles event was, hey, man, if those things add value to your life, I don't see any problem with it whatsoever. Mm. I think the problem with many of these things, and we can talk about logos specifically here in a second, but the problem with many of these things is they become a sort of prison. Mm -hmm. And our possessions... If you don't recognize that you're in a prison, you're never going to break out of it. And one of the things that Joshua did with Leo and Colin and Courtney Carver when we first started is they helped me recognize that I was in a sort of prison. Mm. And part of that prison was the need for applause. So the distraction of applause that you talk about in the book. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the ways that I got applause or validation was by wearing nice things. And one way, a shortcut to wearing nice things 
is, oh, look at the logos on my things. It yes. communicates to you that I am the type of person who likes a horse on my collared shirt. Mm-hmm. And it became a prison. I need to spend more money on these things to signal to other people that I am this type of consumer, a mm-hmm. consumerist equanimity in a way. And this is reminding me of the logo conversation in particular. I was at a coffee shop yesterday and there was a guy who was directly in front of me and he had on Nikes and Adidas socks, a Reebok shirt and Under Armour shorts on. Nice. And they all had well these played. different... <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> he had all these different logos. And I don't think he was trying to signal. I think he just threw these things yeah, on that he sounds had. Sounds like it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but quite often with logos, I think the problem is we are trying to signal to other people that I am important. I am significant. I have meaning or purpose. But the purpose is never in the brand or in the logo. No, I don't have a problem with a logo. Mm. With, with respect to we have our own logo. It, it it signals something. It, sure. it communicates something. But when it says, I'm a better human being because of it, I think it's a bit of a problem. Well, when you let the logo tell your story for you, like that's, I think, where it becomes a bit pernicious. Like, you know, minimalism doesn't tell us, uh, or this M doesn't say, uh, hey, we're the minimalists and we're awesome. And you could be a minimalist too. I mean, it does signify the like, hey, here's what we're about. Here are the things we talk about. But, you know, minimalism doesn't tell our story. Like, we tell our story of minimalism. And what we do is we look at logos to tell our story for us. And go out there and tell your own story. Don't let a logo tell your story for you. Brilliant. (laughs) Thank you. Any other compliments you want to give me, Joshua Becker? You don't wear a lot of logos? Uh, Not typically. No, I have a couple things with logos. Do you have some things with logos that you wear? I mean, do you you, you not wear something if it has a logo on it? I got logos on these pants somewhere. Yeah, I got a shirt, t-shirt with a logo, but yeah. I tend to avoid them. I don't seek them out, yeah. but I'm also like, if I have a pair of shoes or something mm-hmm. that has a logo on it, it's not the end of the world. Yeah. Or I wear That's chucks. How I am. It's hard not to see chucks. Yeah. When you see mm-hmm. chucks, you know exactly what those are. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's hard to avoid it. It's, again, just like we're the stuff you're talking about within your book, there's nothing wrong with these things. It's when you use these things as the pursuit that's where um, you're just leading yourself down a path of uh, disease. Yeah. 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 No, that's brilliant commentary, you guys. I can see <laughs> Thank why, you. I can see why you're the expert. There's plenty more to come. <laughs> um, yeah. No, very true. I I, uh, I try to avoid them. I mean, I, I, I wear to the gym. I wear different logos yeah. and the hat I wear has a logo on it. Um, and the shirt I wear has a different logo on it when I go to the gym, but... Mm. Um, what is Joshua Becker wearing? If I'm doing something in public, like if I'm recording something, then I I don't want to I don't want a brand logo yeah. on on what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want it to distract. I I don't like the whole walking billboard idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so I try to avoid them. My wife always makes fun of me because uh, I wear J Crew T-shirts, but they changed where they're making them and they don't fit so well anymore. Mm-hmm. And so she's always looking for like the new v-neck black t-shirt that i can buy in a bulk of and keep mm. and use forever um she's like well we can't do that one's got a logo on it i'm like what about that branch like they got logos on mm. it and i'm like well then all right let's keep looking and let's find one without that's mm. actually one of the reasons we have this logo here is to cover up the microphone <clears throat> logo which <laughs> right. funny. was really hideous <laughs> let's do one more uh surprise question here how about <coughs> how about we do something from nick how has the post-pandemic new normal changed the way we decide what truly matters? 
So, Joshua, you talk about what matters in the book. Has that changed over the last few years? I don't know that it has changed, Mm -hmm. but maybe it has illuminated what actually matters. Uh, Minimalism, uh, for me, did not change uh, what matters most to me. I think I even mentioned that in the the book. Um, uh, Faith, family making a difference in the world. Like those, those were always the three things that were most important to me. Mm. Uh, minimalism didn't change those things. Um, maybe force me to redefine a little bit about what those things looked like, perhaps. Um, but I always say it allowed me to accomplish more in those three things than I ever thought I would have been able to accomplish. I think it made me uh, a, a better um, Christian. I, I think it made me a better father uh, and spouse. And I think I've had a bigger difference in the world than I ever thought I would. So minimalism freed me up to uh, do more of those things. So minimalism for me didn't change my values. I don't think the pandemic changed my values in any of those ways. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine who um, uh, was talking about uh, relationships and how like the pandemic brought about hopefully a desire for more relationships, or at least we started to notice what we were missing. Yes. Um, and uh, based on that conversation, it, it occurred to me that um, when, we, when we get intentional about something, then it, it tends to become more valuable to us. Mm. So when pre-pandemic, when I could go meet my friends at the coffee shop anytime I wanted. I rarely did, but it wasn't a priority to me because I knew that I could at any time. Mm-hmm. But suddenly the the opportunity to do that is gone yeah. or the opportunity to visit my grandmother is gone mm. or it's not gone, but it takes a lot of effort. Like, okay, I got to make sure I don't see anyone for 10 days before I go see my grandma and I got to take the test and we got to decide where we're going to do it and where we're going to meet outside. And like, it, like that became something that just wasn't rolling in the back of my head, but something I had to become intentional about doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that way, I think it um, elevated a little bit in value and importance just because something that was always in the background was taken away from me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't I don't know what the pandemic has done. I I mean I I saw plenty of bad habits emerge in my life. Some oh, yeah. I still think I'm trying to break and and overcome. And ooh, talk about um, those. Likewise, come on, Joshua <laughs> Becker exposed. This is the TikTok video. <laughs> he realized how he needs uh, Fabergé eggs in his life, and he he yes. just started with buying one, and now he can't stop. <laughs> uh no. <laughs> No, fa- no Fabergé eggs. No Fabergé eggs. Probably too many times through the office uh, on oh, television yeah. that, you know, that, at the beginning. And mm. so trying to overcome, you know, some of those habits that I had broken and, yeah. you know, creep back in when you can't do anything else. So, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I yeah, I had to kind of go through the same thing. It's like when you're just stuck at home. And I too have probably been through the office too many times. Right, and I, I, like Mariah and I's conversations consist of like 25% office quotes, 25% Simpsons quotes, and then 50% oh. of us were yelling what from the other room. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's fascinating. I, 
I, you're saying both. Of you're saying office. I'm like the office. Ta- I didn't realize you're talking about the TV show. <laughs> the <office>. and, <laughs> I, I'm super confused for a moment. Okay. <clears throat> um, the the thing that I noticed a lot of people grasping with, and this word really became in vogue the last few years was essential. Right. We talked about essential travel, essential workers, essential businesses, and the three of us have been asking that question: like, what is essential? And a lot of people were in there stuck in their homes for a while asking. They were looking around all this stuff. And at first, people were like, oh, I'm glad I held on to all these excess things and so I'm spending more time at home. But then realized, like, no, those things are distractions. Mm. They're not the things that matter. These are things that are getting in the way. Mm. And so by having an overabundance of stuff, by having excess, it's actually getting in the way of what is essential. And I, mm. I think the the pandemic brought that to the forefront. Now, it did create some habits as well. You know, alcohol uh, ingestion went up significantly. Yeah. Alcohol sales <clears throat> went up significantly during mm. the podcast or during the, the pandemic. <laughs> Freudian slip. And on our podcast. <laughs> um, but what I noticed is that Yes, while those habits certainly manifested and a lot of sorrow, a lot of overwhelm, a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, Mm -hmm. there was also a lot of coping with the lives that we had created for ourselves. Very similar to when you first started simplifying your life. You've got the great story about you being in the the garage and sort of realizing all the stuff in the garage is keeping me from playing with my son. Mm. But then we, if you were stuck in your garage for a year or two, it can become a burden. Eventually, a lot of people started started uh, well getting rid of that excess. Mm. Yeah, for me, the I don't think the pandemic helped me reframe anything, um, but it did help me affirm some things. Like, oh, minimalism! Thank God I've been, you know, living this lifestyle for the last ten years because I have pretty much everything I need. I mean, there's some you know consumables that you know you can't stock up on. But, but, you know, by and large, like when we were stuck in the house, I didn't feel overwhelmed by my stuff. I didn't feel like I was missing out on things. And, you know, people would ask us, uh, you know, they're like ribbing us on Twitter. I bet, bet you guys are regretting that minimalist lifestyle now that you're stuck at home. I think Josh responded. He's like, yeah, I really missed that broken waffle iron I got rid of. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the other thing too, for me is uh, my relationship with Mariah. Like I, I'm so glad that like her and I have the relationship we do because you know, I don't just love her. I like her. And uh, yeah, spending time with her was amazing. It was great. Where I know that a lot of people found out what, you know, their relationship was really like, uh, you know, on the other side of things um, when they were stuck at home with their partners. I mean, wasn't it like, didn't like domestic abuse like go? Had to. What, yeah, yeah, there's no question about it. Yeah, it's unfortunate. But but yeah, I don't know if it helped me reframe anything, but it definitely helped me some, affirm some things in my life and watch The Office several times. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it seems to me that maybe that for some for many people, the pandemic was fuel to the fire. So if it creates discontent, if you already had a you know embers of discontent in one area, now all of a sudden mm. you had the it was the stoking of that fire and it turned into a, a conflagration in many ways. Yeah. Do you notice that with any of your readers at becoming minimalist that were they giving you feedback about how things were different during the pandemic? I remember when <clears throat> uh, I remember when the pandemic first uh, broke, and uh, we were all supposed to be home for 15 days. And uh, I'm like, this is going to be the golden age for becomingminimalist.com. Like, 
people are stuck at home. They're going to see they have too many shoes in their closet. And like, this is going to be, this is going to be it. Um, but I didn't find that to be the case. Mm. And, um, and I think at first it occurred to me that when you're dealing with matters of life and death, uh, how many pairs of shoes are in your closet isn't the thing that you're most concerned about. Like it was literally life and death, like fearing for life and death at the beginning. And so mm. how many pairs of shoes in your closet weren't, I think, a huge concern for a lot of people. Um, <clears throat> then came, uh, I had a conversation with a friend uh, uh, several months into it, maybe a month or two into it. And uh, he was asking me about minimalism and the pandemic and what I'd seen. And I'm like, ah, you know, a few more conversations, but I don't know if it's been anything huge. And, uh, and he said, um, I feel like buying is the only, I feel like shopping on Amazon is the only thing I can control these days. I can't go to the restaurant that I want. I can't go to a movie that I want. I can't go to a game that I want. I can't even go to work like I want to. The only mm. thing I can control is I can buy something on Amazon and have it delivered uh, the next day. Mm. And um, like he, uh, a great guy, like he was just admitting like this is what he saw um, happening in his life. And uh, so that really struck with me, you know, stuck with me a lot and certainly found a lot of people trying to outfit their homes with a lot of the stuff that they, they think would, would make them happy and all the things that they thought they needed to make the the perfect home. And, yeah. um, I think a lot of unhealthy habits started mm -hmm. sparking up in, in people's lives. And, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know if overall the pandemic's been good for us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's as much, uh, I don't know. Someone once said there's more, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's there's more pandemics in the world than than just the virus, and um, I mean there's a, a lot of things that it, I think the virus has shown a light on and yeah. stoked and yeah. uh, sparked and um, yeah, we, we, know, we probably these... the great resignation comes out of that, you know, yeah. just you know, just discontented with life and work and yeah, yeah. The the multi pandemic view is like we have the the material possession pandemic. We have the loss of meaning pandemic. We certainly have a loneliness epidemic in uh, our country. And even though we're more connected, we're less connected. And and there's probably a, a causal relationship there as well. Certainly a correlation. But as we become more connected with our devices and, and our ability to communicate, it's opened it up to all of these other distractions that actually disconnect us from what matters. And so mm -hmm. I think that's I think an important point you bring up with the Amazon thing is quite often we go seeking things that matter through things. We pretend that's a shortcut. The same way we do with logos are a shortcut. The things are a shortcut. We feel compelled. We were reading one of your articles on the podcast a few months ago and you were talked about, I think it was a hundred things you wish you told your 18 year old self. Mm -hmm. And one of those things was like, Hey, don't feel compelled to fill the house mm -hmm. right away mm -hmm. because empty space, we look at it and we say, what I'm empty. I'm incomplete. If my house is incomplete. Mm -hmm. So we go to Amazon or wherever we buy a bunch of things to fill the space. And now all of a sudden we are dealing with the opposite problem. We bought a bunch of things that don't really matter. And now they're in the way of what mm -hmm. does. Yeah, mm. Joshua Becker. Thank you so much for being here today, brother. Yeah, man, you're awesome. Oh, come on! Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, let's, let's do so this again in four years. Yes. 
That's right. Let's do it in two. Let's do it in two. <laughs> Becomingminimalist.com is the website over there. You can find his brand new book, which just came out. It's called Things That Matter. Mm. And uh, you can also find his YouTube channel and his blog. Oh, and Joshua Becker is going on tour. The Things That Matter tour. See Heck me yeah. in person. Yeah, man. See me in person. Across the United <clears throat> States. You can find all those dates. <laughs> Over at becomingminimalist.com as well. You coming out to LA? I'm doing the Midwest. All right. I did uh I did the West Coast with the more of less. Did okay. the East Coast yeah. with the minimalist home. And so uh in the Midwest? Midwest from uh Omaha, Chicago, Nashville, Louisville, Atlanta, Birmingham, Indianapolis. Cool. Not in that Maybe order. All throughout the South. It's a, it's a nice part of the and country. And the Midwest. Anything, yeah. Anything else we need to plug? Anything else you want to plug? Uh no, I appreciate the cool. book and uh, real Thanks. quick, you uh, you you mentioned before you wrote this. I remember I got an email from you. You said, "You have decided I'm never going to write another book." Ah, that's about right. <laughs> <laughs> and yet here we are with this mm. book. Uh, what compelled you to to actually say, "Okay, you know what? I've got another one in me. I feel so I feel so drawn to this." How did that conversation come about? That I said I was going to never write about another book because that is how I felt after the Minimalist Home came out. Yeah, I, I, I think done. we were we were talking about. Um, Ryan and I were finishing up Love People Use Things and you're like, oh, that's great. I've decided I'm not going to do oh, another book. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Just before I said I disagree with you on so much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love, I love 600 to 1,000 word articles. Like I do that very well and I like writing in that context. And so when I went to write The More of Less and I sat down with my editor He's like, well, what, you know, problem, premise, um, thesis in every chapter. And I'm like, I, I, I don't know how to do this. How do I get people to read 60,000 words in a row? Mm. Um, and so the more of less was a lot of work. The minimalist home was a lot of work. Um, and when I was done with that book, I was like, I, I think I'll just settle with the 600,000 words. Mm. Well, I had started doing a, a retreat up in Northern California, a weekend retreat on minimalism. And, um, the Sunday morning conversation was always about uh, not just possessions, but what are some of the other distractions that keep us um, from a meaningful life? And so this is where a lot of the material came about, talking mm. about money and accolades and leisure and um, selfishness. And so that's where the, the book was born, was in that Sunday morning um, talk that I did probably three different times. Um, and uh, then I was at a, a session, um, Charlie Gilkey uh, wrote a book called Start Finishing and he was doing a workshop uh, down in Phoenix. And so uh, I went down there with my team and the book, the book is all about finishing a project. And he's, he has closed our eyes at the beginning of the workshop. And he said, I want you to picture a specific project as we talk through these principles of how to finish what you started. And he said, close your eyes. If you were to die today, what is the one thing you would most regret not completing? And uh, this book came immediately to mm. mind where I'd say, where I said, I would regret not taking the principles of minimalism and expanding them beyond possessions and addressing some of these other topics that I see out in the world. And so that was where the book came about. And I bet by the uh, end of that, uh, I talked to my wife first, uh, and I called my editor, and I said, if I write this book, will you help me? And he said yes, and then I 
emailed my agent and I said, do you think this book would work? And he said, yes. And so that was the, mm. that was the birth of it. I love That's it. Awesome. I'm uh, I'm proud of it. I did a podcast a couple um, months ago and the guy said, um, Joshua, I know I've been on, I've known him for years. He said, I, I know you're known for minimalism, but I think this is the book that you were born to write. Mm. Uh, and it was probably one of the most meaningful things other than everything you guys have said. <laughs> of uh, course. One of the most meaningful things I think someone said about, about the book. So it's a great book. Yeah. Thanks for writing it. I think a lot yeah. of people are going to get value from it. Amen. Uh, thank you. Appreciate you being here. Thanks, All right, y'all love people use things. We'll see you soon. If you're watching the live stream, we'll be back in a couple minutes. See ya. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it.